0: Amen. Why don't you grab a seat? We're gonna uh, go into God's Word together, and uh, happy. It just feels like summer day, just happy summer. You know, Crocs are out, socks are out, whatever your kids wear, they're out. You know, it's just it's a good time to be alive in Michigan. And the reason I say that is because our our kids are slowly growing up and becoming more fun to hang out with. You know, I you know even, like we have a two month old, she's fun but she doesn't do a lot. No, we got and we all have a two year old, just a little over a two year old. And she's fun, man. She is nude most of the time in our backyard, and it has been an awesome summer for her. She's living it up. Um, but it's crazy how fast kids grow, right? I mean, I was looking at pictures yesterday. I was like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe how fast. And I didn't know this, that, that and maybe you knew this, but two-year-olds are half the height that they will be for the rest of their life, which is crazy. Think about that. So take your two-year-old, if you have one or recently had one, two years old, and you project out double- that's how tall they're going to be. Now, I have a bunch of short genetics in my family, so that's kind of a bummer for our kids, but Lindsey's family has a bunch of taller people in it, so I'm really hoping that Lennon follows the projection and gets tall, because if she chooses not to go to Harvard, at least she can get basketball scholarships for Duke. You know what I'm saying? That's that's my parent brain. That would be amazing, and so, but it got me thinking just about how we grow as adults, how we grow spiritually, how we grow even from being an infant to being mature. And I started to think about my own story, and something began began to puzzle me. Why, and maybe you can resonate with this, why does it feel like there are times spiritually I'm growing, I'm getting taller in the Lord, I'm getting stronger, the muscles, the bones are growing. It's like all of my my relationship with Christ is going farther and why are there times where I feel absolutely stuck? Where I feel like I'm not growing? I feel like I'm paused. It feels like I'm stunted in my growth. It feels like I'm I'm not getting any taller. Why is that? Like, how is it possible if God is faithful, his character is consistent, he doesn't fluctuate based on how I'm feeling day to day? How is it possible that if I'm following that God, I'm trying my best, I'm sincere, how is it possible in the Christian life that there are seasons where you're really growing, and there's seasons where you're stuck. Seasons where you're getting taller and seasons where you still feel like you're two years old. Well, the answer is actually in the parable we're going to read today. Now, I want to give you a disclaimer. It's a gory one. This parable is rated R, okay? So just watch out. Like, if this was made into a movie, this would be an intense movie. But in this parable, Jesus is teaching religious people. He's teaching leaders people in the church, elite spiritual people in the Jewish community about his kingdom. He's teaching about the kingdom of God. And this is what he says. So if you have a Bible, the reference will be on the screen. Matthew 21, 33. This is in kind of a string of other parables about the kingdom of God. And listen to what he says. These are Jesus' words, Matthew 21, 33. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. This is important. Before we keep going in the parable, uh, Jack preached last Sunday about a vineyard, and there's multiple parables Jesus uses with these same metaphors and analogies, but this one's different. This one, the landowner is so wealthy, he's removed from the equation. He's like, I don't have to be here. Man, I'm work from home, passive income. I'm doing all that stuff, like, I'm just going to be out on the lake, and you guys have to manage the farm. You've got to make sure it keeps producing fruit. And so he hires probably very minimum wage farmers to do the work. And so he leaves. He's he's out of the picture. So verse 44, 34, when the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenant seized his servants. They beat one, killed another And stoned a third. That's not where I thought the parable was going. I don't know if that's what you thought. Like, it is a hard right turn into what Jesus is talking about. It's like, whoa, how did we go from, like, vineyards and fruit and passive income to murder and evil and a very dark, dark story? Well, then he keeps going. Verse 36. Then he sent other servants to them more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. The same story happens. So they send these people to, to collect the fruit from the farm, the, get all the good stuff from the vineyard, to, to, to bring it to the market, to sell it, to make money. What happens? They kill the other group of these, of these farmers, of these tenants. So you think, okay, at this point, the landowner's got to have learned his lesson. He's not doing that. Like, I'm not going to send any more people because they're just getting wiped out. They're getting killed. Well, last of all, verse 37, he sent his son to them, thinking, and this may make sense, you may resonate with this thought, like, they're going to respect my son. Sure, they don't like my employees, but they're not going to kill my own son. Like, he he's the heir to my inheritance. He's got rights to my money. They'll respect him. Verse 38, but when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, they turn and look around and say, hey, guys, this is the heir. Let's kill him so that we can get his inheritance. It's like, what is going on here? These are a group of pretty entitled employees. Like they're taking all these people out, and the landowner is not really doesn't seem to be doing much about it. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? So Jesus, this is unique. He flips the parable, and no longer is Jesus just teaching this this parable by himself, but he's actually inviting the, the teachers of the law, religious leaders, to say, Hey. You help me tell the story. What happens when the landowner comes back to the vineyard after you've killed group one, group two, and his own son? What's going to happen? So the Pharisees, these religious leaders, they kind of say, like, there needs to be justice, right? Verse 41, he literally says, the the group of them say, well, of course, he's going to bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants, preferably ones who don't kill people. You know, like they're going to rent it to other people who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? The Lord has done this. It's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit, to people who are responsive, people who respect the landowner's presence, like I'm gonna give it away to those people. Anyone who falls on this cornerstone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. That has got to be an awful feeling. <laughs> Maybe you've had that. That is conviction. That is like, oh, like you are talking about me. And so the Pharisees began immediately. This, the way this parable Kind of chapter closes is they look for a way to arrest him because they're afraid. The crowd believes that Jesus, he's a prophet. He is speaking truth into the culture, into the community of the Jewish leaders and and truth to power. It's an amazing moment for them. but if you're the the farmer in the story, which are the Pharisees, it's not a good not a good parable for you. See, Israel's the vineyard in this story, and the farmers are these religious leaders. It's easy to read a story like that. There's a lot of like right turns. There's a lot of death. (laughs) It's a heavy parable. But in verse 36, something jumped out to me this week that I've never seen before. In verse 36, listen to what it says. Jesus says that then the landowner sent other servants to them more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Why is that significant? Why does it even matter to know that? And to kind of pull this out of the story, well, landowners were wealthy. Landowners had the rights to the land. They had the produce. They had the fruit. They got to bring it to market. They took in the majority of the profits. They were they were well off. And so, landowners, especially those that were not in town, were notoriously abusive, harmful, harassed their, these minimum wage employees. They weren't there. They didn't care. Like they just popped in and kind of made fun of somebody and then maybe hurt somebody, and someone who wasn't pulling their slack beat them up, and it's like, I get to go home, and they're minimum wage workers. What are they going to do? They need the work. They need the job. So they're notoriously abusive in hearts, but in this parable, the, the the equation is flipped. It's the farmers who are abusive and harmful and murderous, and the landowner who's in this story Being taken advantage of. And here's the thing. The way you responded to a messenger of the owner is how you thought about the owner. How you respond to the messenger is how you treated the owner. If you send the tenants, they're going on your behalf. You kill these guys. Well, to the owner, you might as well be dead. I I dare you to come out here. Then he sends a son. Same thing. Like, why send more servants when the farmers murdered the first group of servants? Like, you own the vineyard. Take them out. But there's a lesson here about the character of God, the, the king of the kingdom that we need to learn before we apply this to ourselves. And that lesson is this. God is rationally patient and kind with us. God is irrationally patient and kind with us. If I read this story in my human mind, I am done with these guys at group one. First round of murders, I'm coming back. I'm taking those guys out. That's how the Pharisees say the story should end, right? All these people should be wiped out. Like, that's justice. That's true, righteous judgment. But that's not how God, how Jesus portrays God in this story, in this parable. If Israel's a vineyard and the, the religious leaders are the farmers, and God is the landowner, God continues to send his message and his voice and himself and even his own son to us, people who he knew likely would reject him. And he does it anyway. Why? Because this is this is teaching us about the character of the king. God is irrationally patient and kind. He loves way more consistently than we do. His conditions are way broader for love than mine would be. Like his his heart and disposition towards these farmers is is much different, much more compassionate than I would be. However, here's what I want to point out. This parable is not just about the character of God. It's important to learn that. That may be the takeaway for you, but this parable also teaches us something about us, about what it means to follow Jesus in the kingdom of God, and it's this. Jesus is pointing out that our response to him is the most accurate predictor of our growth. How we respond to the messengers, how we respond to Jesus, how we respond to his conviction and his promptings and his voice, how we obey him in all areas of life. That is the most accurate predictor of our growth. Friends, your growth is directly tied to your response to Jesus in your life. Unfortunately, we do not get to rest on how we responded to the gospel 10 years ago. We don't get to say, man, you should have seen me a couple years ago. Every Sunday it was like, hands up, I'm singing at the top of my voice, but now like life's harder, it's different. Did God change? No, but we, we changed. Our response, somewhere along the way, changed. But friends, I just want to tell you, your growth is directly tied to your response. I heard the story of this American couple just freshly married uh, felt called to the mission field. They end up moving to kind of core of Jerusalem in Israel, in the Holy Land. And they're living there for just a couple months. It begins to get really hot. They're hit in the middle of the summer and they've got no AC in the apartment. So they are doors open, windows open, trying to make sure that they get some kind of relief from this desert heat. But they notice something. When their windows and doors are open, this beautiful white dove descends and rests on their porch. Now, if you know the Bible at all or a little bit, you may know that there's an image in the very beginning of the New Testament where Jesus gets baptized, like commissioned by the Father. This is my son whom I'm well-pleased. And in that amazing moment, it says that the Holy Spirit descended like a dove and it remained on Jesus. Okay? So in, in these missionaries' mind, they're like, sweet, this is amazing. It's literally like, God's saying, like, you're doing a good job. Keep going. It's his affirmation. Like, this dove is chilling on our porch every morning. This is incredible. And over time, there's a rumor out there that certain married couples fight, and this certain couple, they were fighting. They were getting angry at each other, hurling harsh words at each other, criticizing each other. Why would you make me come here? Why would we leave our family? You're an idiot. Like, going back and forth, back and forth. And they notice, they, they kind of look out and they see the dove get off the porch and fly away. And a couple weeks goes by, the, the doves come, doves is back there in the morning, they're sipping their coffee, everything's good. That afternoon they get in another fight, and the dove lifts off the porch and flies away. And they notice this pattern over and over and over again. Anytime they are full on just sinning, yelling, criticizing, tearing each other apart, the dove leaves the porch and anytime that they're truly responsive when they're in a good place in their relationship or they're reading their Bible or something that the dove seems to come back and rest on this porch and finally that the husband it only took a few months for the husband to get this you know <laughs> the husband turns to the wife at, at breakfast and says here's the thing i we've noticed this pattern either the dove adjusts to us or we have to adjust to the dove Either we adjust, the dove has to adjust to us and our sin and our broken relationship and our fights and our arguments, or we have to adjust to the dove. We have to let God change some stuff. We have to respond to what he's convicting us about and prompting us about. Friends, your growth is directly tied to to your response. If you want to keep growing, keep responding. If you don't want to keep growing, stop responding. Stop listening to the voice of God Keep sinning the way you're sinning. Keep doing the things you're doing. Keep ignoring conviction. Keep neglecting those, those dreams and the desires God has for you. That's a surefire way to, st- to stop growing this summer. So I thought I'd break it into diagrams. I'm not a great artist, but I thought I'd just kind of put this out here because it helped me think through it visually a little bit. And here, here are the two options before all of us every single day, especially if you follow Jesus. You've surrendered your life to him. You have the Holy Spirit in your life. Every single one of us faces moments on a daily basis. This is not like a one-time thing. On a daily basis in which we encounter the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And the conviction may feel like a sinking feeling in your stomach. It may feel like your heart starts to beat really fast. It may feel like as soon as you let that word out of your mouth, you're like, oh, I wish I could take that back. It's those feelings. Some would call it a conscience, right? But God uses these markers, these indicators to convict us and say, whoa, 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 John, don't, don't go there. Don't say that. Don't treat them that way. Don't, don't spend your money that way. That's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And every single one of us has a chance in that moment to do two things. Number one, we can respond, but what most of us do, knowingly or not, is we neglect that conviction. We're like, it's not that bad or she deserved to hear that, or I deserve this, or I've been good for a while, so I should blank. Conviction, and at least a neglect of the Holy Spirit. And if you neglect the Holy Spirit long enough, just like the dove, the dove will will leave from your life. That doesn't mean you're losing your salvation. doesn't mean you're condemned. You're going to hell all of a sudden, but that tangible presence of the Lord may lift from your life, that peace, that assurance, that consistent feeling like God is real, he's with me, he's for me, that, that may lift from your life. What ends up happening in that neglect is we create distance between us and God. And if there's distance, the kind of cliche saying goes, if there's distance, it's not God who moved, right? So there, there's a, a chance for us to look back and say, God, did I miss somewhere along the way your voice? Did I miss your prompting? Did I miss your conviction? But but the other offer on the table today for all of us this summer is is another kind of response. When we face conviction, we experience that pressing of the Lord's voice or that just inner feeling, that prompting, that conviction, whatever you want to call it. We have a chance to truly respond. We have a choice to repent. We have a, a choice to act. We have a choice to obey. We have a chance to follow through. We have a chance to forgive or to ask for forgiveness, to confess our sin to somebody, we have a chance to respond. And the promise of this parable, as gory as it is, is that when you respond rightly to the presence of the Lord in your life, you will grow. Conviction, response, growth. That's what's so troubling about this parable. You would think at least somebody in this group of peasant farmers checked the rest of the group, like, hey, all right, we had fun. We killed a, a couple people. We probably should not do that again. Like you think someone had that conversation in this group, but they do it again. And you think, okay, someone surely is like, okay, we've killed enough people. Like this is getting bloody. I, I feel really bad about this at this point. Like I'm feeling convicted. We probably should not keep doing that. The owner sends his son and they're like, let's just do this again. Like there's this neglect of conviction that happens in this parable. And conviction oftentimes is God's caution sign in your life. It's God saying, whoa, 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 I love you so much. Please listen. Or please don't do that. Please don't say that. Please don't go there. It's God's caution sign. Why? Because God, His conviction is actually His grace coming to you before judgment. And judgment's how this parable ends, like it or not. These guys come to an end. They ignore the conviction long enough. They don't respond to the landowner's messengers or his own son, and judgment falls. I remember having a conversation with my mom junior year of high school. I remember I just got my license. And and with a license opens up a lot of possibilities, a lot of options for a high schooler. And so I get my license, and I remember sitting at the dinner table having this conversation. I don't even remember what it was about necessarily. But I remember asking, okay, Mom, I know, I know that there is a line. I know that there's things I should not do, just morally should not do. But how far can I get next to that line and still be okay? How far can I push? How far can I go without sinning? And my mom is incredibly loving incredibly patient, incredibly kind. And she just flips it on me. And she says, John, well, she's from Mississippi. So I was like, John, it's like two different, two different uh, translations. But she looks at me and she's like, John, you are asking the wrong question. And I was like, oh, come on. Like you're about to Jesus juke me in my own home. That's not fair. So she looks back and says, John, you're asking the wrong question. How about you ask how, surrendered how holy how pure can I be as a high schooler I hated that question I was like come on that is such like a Jesus churchy answer but you know what many many years later I have thought about that question that's that's the question that conviction helps us to ask not how far can I go but how quickly can I respond to the Lord's voice in my life how quickly can I run away from sin and brokenness and bad patterns of thinking, bad patterns of living. How quickly can I repent and turn back to God? How can I close the time gap on those things? That, that's, that's what's on the table, friends. Your growth, my growth, it's directly tied to our response. See, the right response to conviction, when the Holy Spirit is gracious to do that in our lives, is not neglect, it's turning back to Him. It's, re- it's what the Bible calls repentance saying, I was going this way, you convicted me, I'm pausing, and I'm gonna go back that way. I wanna follow your way, because I know you say, you have life for me, life abundantly, life to the full. And so the Apostle Paul, when he writes in Ephesians, don't grieve the Holy Spirit, what does he follow it up with? He says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit, and then he says this, and get rid of all bitterness, anger, and malice in your heart. Why do we say that? How does that connect to getting, neglecting the Holy Spirit? Well, bitter people are unresponsive people. Angry people are hard-hearted, unresponsive people. People full of malice and hatred in their heart for other human beings. It takes a lot. I'm not saying God can't break through all that stuff. I'm just saying it takes a lot more work for God to break through that, that hard-hearted shell than it would. If those same people, if, if we were open, mature, mature, responsive, soft, tender-hearted human beings. See, people who respond rightly to the conviction of the Holy Spirit are bent on closing the time gap between sin and repentance, sin and confession, prompting an action, prompting an obedience. It's like, how do I get that down to seconds? That's what I'm asking. How do I get that down to seconds? Say, Jesus, you're calling me to do something? I will do it. Jesus, you're telling me, avoid this. Do not do this. Do not go there. Do not buy that. Seconds later, okay, I won't do it. Like, I want to have that responsive of a relationship with the Holy Spirit. Because here's the truth. In verse 41, as this parable kind of transitions from just Jesus' words to to inviting the, the religious leaders into telling this parable with him, the owner does judge justly eventually. It's actually the righteous response. To let evil and sin go unchecked in someone's life is actually cruel of God, not kind. It's actually horrible to think about a world in which all the stuff that happens in this parable will go unchecked. Eventually, there is judgment. Eventually, there becomes a moment where the owner has to come back home and take care of business. It's like, guys, this is not acceptable in the kingdom. It's not acceptable in our culture, in our community. And he deals with them. We're in the, I said we had a two-year-old. We're in this very fun stage in which Lennon is pushing the boundaries with me as a parent, specifically me. She knows Lindsay won't deal with it, but I'm soft. So she's like, oh, we could maybe push some things on you. Like, we could try some stuff that we can't try when mom's around. And one of those is Lennon right now is in a season where she does not want to get out of her car seat. She loves that thing. I don't know if it's the ground-up goldfish or if it's the stickers you know, just it's cozy in there for I don't know why I would hate being in a car seat. She loves it. So she settles in. So we get to our our place, whether it's daycare or friend's house or party, whatever. I'm like, all right, get eaten out. And she's two months old. She can't fight back. She just gets out. But Lennon is like, I'm staying in here. I'm gonna undo the buckle back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. I'm gonna do the bottom buckle, back and forth, back and forth. And I'm like, all right, eventually, either you can walk and you can you can hop out of this car seat and you can go in we got 5 minutes till snack time right we got to get those goldfish we got to get those fruit snacks we got 5 minutes you can either get out on your own or I'm your dad i will pull you out of this car if i have to you know and she looks at me like ooh no 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 and then for 4 minutes <laughs> does the exact opposite of what i want her to do and she'll end up in the front seat or sometimes she gets in the trunk or she'll get in Eden's car seat it's like so, so frustrating. Eventually, there are moments, maybe it'll happen today, I don't know, where I have to pick her up, and I'm strong enough, I can remove her from the car and set her on the path back to the fruit snacks or whatever we're going to, right? So in, in some way, that is how Jesus is telling this parable and says, this is how the kingdom operates. There are some times where I'm giving you chances to respond rightly to me. And not just about sin, just about everything. Worship, obedience, dreams God has for you, reconciling a relationship, forgiveness. And there are other times, the time will run out. I'm gonna have to carry you out of the car at some point. I love you too much. I love you too much. And, And Jesus is saying, friends, your growth, it's directly tied to your response. If we as people continue to neglect the Holy Spirit, neglect his voice, don't respond to the conviction of the Lord, God must judge. And it even says in, in the scriptures, John 16, that judgment and the conviction preceding judgment is a core function of the Holy Spirit. It, it's something he does. It's something you can build your life around. Why? Because your growth is directly tied to your response to God's presence, his promptings, his convictions in your life. This is why conviction is so important. This is why our response before judgment ever hits is so important. It's why in this parable, the land overweights a really, really long time before coming back home. It doesn't make any sense. And Jesus is saying, friends, that, this is what the kingdom is like. The kingdom is like an owner of a vineyard. The kingdom is like, and he's teaching us to learn about his character. To learn about how he, how he leads in the kingdom of God. Artie Kendall puts it this way. He says, if there's anything that will make us blush in heaven, it will be the realization of how much we were loved on this earth but didn't appreciate it. And if we knew how much God welcomes us when we turn to him, we would almost certainly pray more than we do. We would almost certainly pray more, worship more, respond more, than we do. Why? Because it is a incomplete picture of what God is really like that often causes us to not respond to him. And when you get a clear picture, it's like, oh my goodness, the natural response for me is worship, it's my life, it's obedience, it's my hands, it's my song, it's my voice, it's my knees on, on the ground, it's prayer, it's generosity, it's tithing. Like it's it just becomes so obvious. What else would I do? I've got nothing else to offer. It's like, why wouldn't I surrender? Why wouldn't I trust this kind of God? And so the question for all of us, the question for you is where do you need to turn back to God this morning? It may be a sin, maybe something secret, maybe in the dark, it may be a relationship, something you need to reconcile, someone you need to forgive, someone you need to let Jesus come in and take some tools and uproot the bitterness of your heart towards Maybe with your money, how you're handling your resources, your time. It may be your career. Maybe time for you to say, God, I've put so much identity in what I do and what I produce, where I go on Monday morning. I don't even know who I am anymore. I don't even know what I would be if I lost that job. And you just get to say, God, I'm turning, I'm turning that back to you. You get that back. I'm giving it back. See friends, that's for me what is so amazing about worship that's why we're going to take 15 20 minutes to just sing together Be- because worship is a reorientation of what's most important in our life worth worship comes from the word worship literally what is worthy of, of giving yourself to and worship is a chance for all of us to say god i am turning back to you what I'm singing is, is important. What I'm singing is true. What I'm singing is reality. It's because of you I'm made alive. It's because you thought I was worth laying my, your life down for that I sing back to you. I give you my voice. I give you my extended hands. I give you my heart. And I hope, because God has done this in me over this last year and a half, I hope that there is this kind of holy restlessness that you carry, maybe from today on. To say, I, I do not want to live my life content with where I am in Jesus. I don't want to live my life content with how much of God's voice I hear. I don't want to live content with how good I am at reconciling or forgiving. I, I don't want to be content with, well, I've, I don't like that song or I don't like this, the way he's singing that, or I, I'm not going to engage. I'm not going to, I don't want to live that way. I don't think any of us really at the core want to live that way. So maybe even today, worship is a chance for you to turn back to him and say, God, I've got a hard heart when it comes to giving you worth. I don't want to have that. Would you break up the soil? We just felt like even as a church, like this is something that we've embarked to do over this last year or so, specifically this summer with the prayer room and center cookouts, just kind of breaking up the the habits, the normalcy of just Sunday morning church and saying, we believe God has more for us in community and in prayer. So we're going to seek that out. But what is it for you? Where do you need to turn back to him and let him move? And so we're gonna take take some time, take a couple songs. And honestly, you can sit there and pray. You can stand up. You can raise your hands or you can bow your head. But this is a moment, a season of time that we wanna step into to give us some, some space with the Lord to say, God, here's where I'm turning back to you. I've got my thing. I've got my thing but what's yours? Where do you need to turn back? Where do you need to let him back in? And so I'd love to pray for us and just invite the spirit into that time. Jesus, we, we just say thank you. We say thank you for the cross. We say thank you for the gospel. Thank you that's because of you that we're truly alive, because of your mercy and your grace that we have a hope and a future. We thank you that your word says that when we repent, you will bring times of refreshing. Some of us are so dry and so thirsty because we've not turned back to you in some ways. And I pray Lord today, you would just open the floodgates of heaven back on our life as we turn to you, as we repent, as we respond to your conviction, as we let you truly work and lead in our lives. that's what I want. I want it for my family. I want it for us as a church family. I know you want it. And so we just consecrate ourselves. We surrender ourselves right now to you in those ways in Jesus' name.